This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And I am here tonight with my dear colleague and co-host, Mike Yuseem. Executive Director or Director, Faculty Director of the McNulty Leadership no. Program. How about that? You have a lot of titles, actually, <laughs> Mike. You even have a chair. <laughs> Mike, our uh, colleague and co-host, Jeff Klein, is on a field trip today with his daughter in New York City at the World Trade Center. Oh, okay. There it is. Yeah. So he called and said that he wouldn't be able to make it in 15 minutes to be here to join us. And he sends sends his regrets. Well, we're going to have to fill in. We will. So, Mike, uh, I just, you know, we do a little bit of conversation before we welcome our host and our guest. And tonight we have a special guest, uh, former Amazon executive, Mike, who now heads his own advisory firm. He helps clients succeed and thrive in the digital world. And he is John Rossman, and he's written a book called Think Like Amazon, 50 and one-half ideas to become a digital leader. And we can inquire about those 50 ideas and the one-half. Well, the one-half has got us hooked. (laughs) Yeah. dying to know what Chapter 50.5 is all about. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Mike, not long ago, you and I were in China, in Shanghai, and uh, we were talking a little bit about Amazon with the Chinese real estate executives who were in a program in Shanghai. Indeed. And uh, they were, I thought, very interested in hearing about Amazon and in particular Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. Yes, I think we all are. I think we sit in utter fascination, uh, obviously around the rise of the uh, the Internet, but maybe above all – the power of Amazon and Jeff Bezos to kind of capture all commerce of almost all kinds, anything that can be sold yeah. is being pulled into Amazon's orbits, whether it's uh, broccoli or books or recordings or space on computers somewhere in the cloud. Right. It's so, amazing. yeah. So, Mike, we were there in China, I guess it was about two weeks ago. And then uh, did you come straight back to Penn and Wharton? <laughs> or did you I take a meander? Did, did well, you? <laughs> just to uh, reference how the world is flatter, the uh, transportation time is shorter. There are many flights now. Many uh, people who haven't been to China probably haven't yet had to face up to this or haven't come to appreciate it. But there are many nonstop flights from many U.S. cities to actually many Chinese cities now. So near to us, of course, is uh, Newark Airport. There are right. uh, nonstop flights into Shanghai, Beijing. And out of JFK, there's even a nonstop flight to a Western Chinese city called Chengdu. And so if you've got 14 hours to spare, you're ready to see three movies and have five meals and read two books, can I recommend all the above? (laughs) Very good. Well, Mike, I went from Shanghai to Beijing, where I met Hmm. with um, pork producers people in the swine industry. Oh, they're having a tough year, Anne. A very tough year because the country is facing an African swine fever that's decimated about half of the porks, pork production. But it was very, very interesting, I have to say, being there against the backdrop of the trade trade war. Well, I think, Anne, aren't the numbers staggering? Something like 10 million hogs now in China um, have been put to sleep, something like that. Mike, China consumes half of the pork production in the world, hmm. half, and so and produces about about half. <laughs> so if half of that herd is uh, out from under, that's a really a significant, significant loss. But let me not digress because our time here is to talk about Amazon. And uh, I believe we have our guest, John Rossman, ready to join us on the show. John, please do join us. Hi, Ann and Mike. Thanks for having me. 
It's hello, a, hello, John. John, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And uh, I know we're going to talk about your book, Think Like Amazon. But let me say just a little bit about you before we jump in. At Amazon, you launched and scaled the marketplace business, which now accounts for more than 50% of all units sold at Amazon.com. You also led the enterprise services businesses with responsibilities for Target, NBA.com, Toys R Us, and other top brands. And now you are head of Rossman Partners, a niche business advisory firm focused on helping clients adapt to the digital business world. And you've worked with the Gates Foundation, Microsoft, Nordstrom, Target, Walmart, and others. So, John, once again, welcome to the show. Let let me just start with uh, an opening, you know, warm up question. Just what inspired you to write your book, Think Like Amazon? Yeah. So over the past seven years, I've gotten to uh, talk to a lot of audiences, meet with leadership teams, and heard some variation of the question: What would Jeff do? Right? How mm-hmm. would Amazon compete with this? What would their approach be? Um, uh, what would their strategy be? And really, this book was inspired by all the types of conversations I've had about, well, here's how Amazon would approach this. This would be their strategy. This would be their mechanism. This would be their leadership principle. This would be their approach on it. And so that's how I was really able to kind of reverse engineer and think through all those questions. And that's how I came up with 50 and a half ideas. <laughs> uh, and, and really, the book isn't about Amazon. It's, it's really about you and what are you mm-hmm. going to do differently. And here's some tools, strategies, suggestions from Amazon on how they get the types of results they get and and helping you kind of pick which ones might be the right ones for you. Yeah, very good. And I do appreciate that. I'm also wondering about how you chose to organize the book. It's in chunks. There are 50 ideas, 50 and a half, but the large chunks are on culture, strategy, business and technology, and then finally approach and execution. So tell me a little bit about your thinking on how you group those 50 ideas. Yeah, and it's not super clean and neat, meaning you could debate on a topic like, well, is that a culture topic or is that a strategy topic? Because they oftentimes kind of Mm -hmm. fit more than one, but I tried to put it in kind of the predominant. But if I think about in general how, you know, uh, teams are built and how leaders lead, you know, there's that's kind of the category of topics that you come up with is what type of atmosphere, what are my beliefs, systems, that's kind of the culture section. And the, and the strategy is like, how do I decide what to do and what not to do? And that's really the strategy section. Mm-hmm. Business and technology is really the business principles, operational excellence, how to think about technology and architecture as a business person. And then the last one, approach and execution, right at the end of the day, it's all about getting the right things done at the right time. And, and those are kind of the ideas that are in that category. All right. Maybe one more question from me and then over to Mike. Uh, you started with culture. Was that purposeful or just that just seemed it begins with C and that seems like the, a good place to begin? Well, I, I think it's because, you know, culture really starts with your core belief systems. And so a lot of the things I talk about, especially relative to the digital era, is about, you know, if you truly want to reinvent yourself and if you want to follow Amazon's path, these aren't about quick hits. You have to um, have belief in the long term and orientate yourself to the long term. And I think understanding your customer and the customer experience much broader, those are really about kind of cultural aspects of what we believe as a team. All right. Very good. Mike, how about you? John, great to have you on the program, and I think we are all riveted. I mentioned this at the top of the hour as we got going with what Jeff Bezos, the founder, thinks, where he's going, where the company is coming from, and what's yet out there to be conquered by Amazon. It's one of the most amazing stories of the of modern times, the rise of Amazon out of nothing to what it is today. And, John, just to make it personal for a few minutes here, what drew you into working at Amazon in the first place? Well, it was, Hmm. um, you know, early 2002, late 2001 when I started interviewing there. And I I just believed ultimately on on the e-commerce model that there was a better way to shop, discover, 
uh, get products delivered, and, and Amazon was kind of the leader even then, although solely in books, music, video. And I, I like technology-based solutions and, and reducing friction. And so those were the things that really drew me in, and, and it was the right job, and I, was, I think I was hmm. the right person for the right job, which was really about how to dramatically – expand the number of categories that Amazon was selling in and this type of selection we had by integrating with tens of thousands of third-party sellers. And my whole background is about process and data integration and, and, and getting choreography between different parties working seamlessly. And John, given the fact that you were there, not of the creation, but not terribly long after it, I think Amazon goes back to probably 1994 or 95, somewhere in that period. You were a fairly early employee as these things go. And just to talk, if you would, about the influence of the founder, the chief executive on the company at the time, Uh, to what extent did he travel the company? Did he meet with people? Did he offer his personal directives. Uh, give us just a feel for how Jeff Bezos, the guy, operated at that time. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, very hands-on, but in a very collaborative manner, right? And so it wasn't this, like, hmm. present to management and and he dictates back. He, he was a roll-up-his-sleeves problem solver and designer and liked to debate well, how do we measure something? How do we, uh, what's the customer experience? And so he practiced these concepts and these principles like he was just in there practicing. And when I was there in early 2002 through late 2005, it was a fascinating time because we were getting clear that we were really two types of company. We were both a retailer, but we were also a platform company, a platform company that built tools that both Amazon, the retailer, would use as well as other companies would use. And that strategy has mm. really been a major aspect of what has built the conglomerate of Amazon today. So we were hammering these concepts out. But he he was uh, a, a lot of fun to work with, very demanding, right? He expected you to understand the details of your business and be rigorous with your thought, to lead with the customer, to have data, all of those things. But, but it was always to, you know, make us better and make sure that we were getting to the best insights. So I'm going to pick up on uh, Mike's good question, John, and just ask if there was an aspect of the example and by extension, the culture that uh, Jeff Bezos set that inspires one of the ideas in your in your book. Well, um yeah, I mean, uh, in a lot of ways, so many of these um, are inspired by Jeff. But, you know, Idea 15 is called the DoorDesk Forcing Innovation Through Frugality. And so really Jeff was, you know, the one who set the tone about being a frugal company. And that, that was important to both save our resources, but it was also a forcing function that forced you to innovate. Constraints are a really important factor in how you innovate. How do I reduce costs? take to zero quality issues, reduce cycle time. Those are the types of constraints that frugality brings to you. And so he really saw the frugality as a way to help us invent better and faster. Yeah, that's that's great. And I love you've got a wonderful opening quote in front of each of the chapters. And you have in this chapter from Cicero, frugality includes all the other all the other virtues. So it's out of limitation that uh, you can be more more creative. It, that's that's exactly the point, which is, you know, it is a I, I call it a forcing function, which is if if you put, say we have to do this on on a cost on a on a new cost basis that forces you to put aside kind of current approaches, current thinking, current solutions and truly innovate your way to a better to a better solution. All right. One more from me, then back to Mike. Can you give a concrete example of that, either uh, from your experience at Amazon or, you know, in in a discreet way from your advisory experience? Yeah, absolutely. So when we were launching the marketplace business, um, we wanted the customer experience to be as trusted buying from a third-party retailer as it was buying from Amazon, the, the retailer. And so in order to do that, and to scale the business so that we weren't adding 
a, a lot of headcount, we had to really invent how we did the integration with our, all of our third-party sellers, how we gave them tools to do their job better, but also how we put the right mechanisms and governance in place to ensure and measure the customer experience. Those, those were all born out of being frugal. Mm, that's great. All right. I promised to send over to Mike, but first let me remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132, Sirius XM Radio. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm with Mike you seem. And together we have the pleasure of speaking with John Rossman about his book, Think Like Amazon. Mike. John, you just referenced a really interesting point, which is that the, the course, the, the pathway that Amazon has been on has been to invent and then reinvent. Mm. Can't rest on your laurels. You began as a bookseller. Uh, now you're in the cloud. You sell products through uh, grocery stores. Uh, so you've reinvented, Amazon has invented and then reinvented many times over. I want to read, though, a quote that is in your book that comes from Jeff Bezos, the founder, and then ask a question about it on this very topic. It says, companies have short lifespans and Amazon will be disrupted one day. Mm. <laughs> and I know you're working or they are working now mm-hmm. for that not to happen. But uh, do you agree with that? notion that all companies in that sense are mortal, just like all of us, that we're, we wish we were immortal, but it's not going to happen. What do you think? I think that's what history shows us, is that, you know, all companies have, have a certain lifespan. And that, and I think what's even more dramatic is that the number of companies who have successfully spanned from one era to another is very limited. And that's mm-hmm. what makes company lifespans shorter and shorter, right? So if you look at the S&P 500 list, the turnover in that list is accelerating. Over 70% of all companies that are in the S&P 500 today won't be there in 10 years. That's accelerated. And that's because business models are changing faster than ever. And John, doesn't that point to the vital importance just to draw the implication of that for people like you when, when you were there and Jeff Bezos now? to be really savvy about making certain that you reinvent yourself because what got you here is not going to get you there. So speak to that if you would. Yeah, that that is a big theme throughout the book, which is, you know, when, when I talk to company leaders, I'll always ask, like, who believes that innovation is vital to the next, you know, five-year survival of the company? Everybody puts up their hand. Mm-hmm. Next question I ask is, who actually has a deliberate process for how innovation happens in your company? Well, nobody ever raises their hand. And Mm. so that disconnect of we all say we need to be innovative, but yet we we don't approach it like it's a real system. And I think that's part of Amazon is the fact that they're innovative, the fact that you know, they will have patents and inventions and, and both big and small improvements every single year. That doesn't happen by accident. There's a system, there's a playbook. And what I've tried to do is outline what that playbook is to get both operational excellence and innovation in your organization. John, to quote a CEO a couple years ago who put a company through a wrenching restructuring, he said on arrival he thought culture and its discontents were one of the problems that caused that company to falter. He said after a couple of years, he realized culture was the problem. Hmm. It was not one of several. It was the problem. The company was inward looking, uh, more into form than content. So that's my preface into asking you just to characterize, if you would, ever so briefly, the culture of Amazon when you were there. How would you describe it? Um, it was it was demanding but low bureaucracy. And by demanding, meaning as a leader, you had to have uh, incredible understanding of the details of your business. You were both operating something at scale plus working in the future, right? Inventing, mm-hmm. planning new plans. And so in that way, um, it was it was really, de- really demanding, but it was, it was a great environment to be uh, a leader in. I think we were also just coming out of a phase where, you know, the markets didn't think we were going to be successful. And so we were proving to ourselves that 
we knew we were going to be successful and we just had to stay with it. Hmm. Um, again, John, I'm, I'm curious in this question of culture and the longevity of organizations. So uh, if it's the case that organizations have a uh, limited lifespan, some do live longer than others. And in fact, uh, Mike, I'm thinking of the Catholic Church. <laughs> that's been <laughs> that's been that's, that's a, pushing but a two, long two thousand years yes yeah. okay so so what is the secret to longevity in an organization uh if it is innovation you know from your perspective having been inside amazon and and now advising organizations how do you go about um keeping yourself healthy and fit for a long time as an organization well, 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 that's the essence of a couple of the ideas, but in particular, idea number eight, which is called avoid country clubs, stay hungry even when you're <laughs> successful. Um, working <laughs> that's with great. Restructuring, work, working with restructuring companies is actually some of the best clients I've ever worked with because they aren't holding on to the past. Successful companies are the hardest ones to actually make change happen because they all say they want to, to be, become digital and to innovate and to change. But really, in their hearts of hearts, both as a business as well as senior leaders, they don't really want to change. They don't really want to invest today when they could harvest it as profits. And so I think that, hmm. not, you know, avoiding that country club um, mentality of like, hey, we're just going to kind of coast and we'll pass on, um, you know, we'll pass down to leadership, kick the can down the road on some tough issues or on reinventing ourselves. We'll pass that on to the next generation of leaders. That's, I think, the tone and tempo from the top that Amazon tries to avoid is, you know, they they understand that they have to be the ones most aggressive at mm-hmm. inventing and building new business models, even if that means that they are going to disrupt their current ones. The marketplace mm-hmm. business that, that we launched in 2002 had internal resistance to it because mm-hmm. we were bringing competition to Amazon, the retailer. And so that's an example mm-hmm. where Amazon continues to force reinvention on itself. Oh, that's great. I, I appreciate that answer and that example. I'm also wondering about the your, your idea number two, mercenary or mission-driven. To what degree does focus on the mission uh, make a difference in uh, reinventing yourself? Yeah, and so the essence of that chapter is really about, you know, Bezos talks a lot about that, you know, uh, mission-driven uh, builds better products. They have more passion about it. But what I tried to tease out was, like, not everybody comes in with that set of orientation. You're kind of mildly interested, right? And so what do you do to actually take the mildly interested and connect them better with the mission? You do need – um, you know, mission-driven people who just absolutely believe in the cause and the customer and your solution. But you can actually build that through the way that you approach it with the team, right? And I think that's just really about understanding what people's personal motives are and mm-hmm. finding ways to connect it to, you, to your overall organizational mission and putting them in the best role that helps connect the two of those. Mm-hmm. So am I understanding you right then to say for some it's going to be a focus and obsession with the mission itself, but for others, others might be obsessed with just simply winning? That's right, and, and you have to work to align the two of those. All right. Very... I, I think it, I think it's I think it's too simple. It's too easy to just say, well, all we want are mission-driven people. The world's not built that way, right? right? And so you have to find a way to take, you know, the mercenaries, the ones that are in it for other reasons, good reasons, right? Like I have a mortgage to pay. I I need a good job. I I want to have a balanced life. Well, there's a role for them too, and you can actually build them into more patriotic aspects uh, of being passionate about your mission. Okay, can you say just one, a little one, more? One, yeah, go for it. <laughs> one way you do that is always starting with the customer. If every conversation, every meeting, mm-hmm. every topic, you at least understand and talk about, well, here's the customer's perspective on that. If that becomes a habit of the organization, guess what? 
everybody picks up on deeply understanding the customer, which helps build, you know, that that mission orientation for your organization and a deep caring for your customer. Oh, very good. And I really do appreciate how difficult that is because it's easy to fall into the I statements <laughs> rather than to think about, uh, about That's right. the or, customer. Or, or, you know, my role is just this. I don't have to understand the customer. That's that is a, a perspective that doesn't uh, belong at Amazon, and I think that really is part of the new era, which is everybody needs to understand the customer, and everybody needs to start with the customer's perspective and, and, and problem-solve backwards. And if the organization builds that habit, you're going to have a team that has a lot more fun and is more mission-driven. Very good. Well, John, we're going to pause here for a short break. But when we come back, I'd very much like to pick up on that idea of being customer driven and how you do that. So listeners, please stay with us. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem. And together, we are speaking with John Rossman. And he's written a great new book called Think Like Amazon. We will be right back. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Anne Greenhall, here tonight with Mike Yuseem, and together we're speaking with John Rossman, who is the author of a new book called Think Like an Am think like not an Amazon, but think like (laughs) Amazon, 50 and one half ideas to become a digital leader. John, thank you. And welcome back to the show. We were talking uh, before the break about thinking like a customer. And here at Wharton, Pete Fader, is it Pete Fader who coined the phrase customer centricity? We talk, we talk about that a lot here. So we'd like That's to right. pick... He's a big customer lifetime value yes. um, thought leader. Yes. Exactly. I learned from Pete Fader that not all customers are equal. I used to think right. that the customer was the number one, but no, some customers are more worthwhile <laughs> than others. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about thinking like a customer. Well, I think it's it's really um, about having that customer mindset and deeply understanding. Most companies and teams, they always have good financial metrics. Some have good operational metrics, but so oftentimes they don't really have good customer experience metrics. And one of the goals we always had at Amazon was, uh, as a leader, you should always be able to answer the question, did my customers have a good day today? yes or no, right, with data, with metrics. And so always figuring out how do I actually measure the customer experience was a was a vital part about how we thought about our business and put instrumentation in place. And when I work with, with other companies, they rarely truly have a, a really good and active and vibrant discussion about what the customer experience is and how do we measure it every single day and then put those measurements into action. Like how do we get better? How do we drive towards perfection for that customer experience? Hmm. I'm going to get Mike in here in a second, but let me ask an impertinent question. Do they even really know who their customer is? Well, I, I, I think that's a, an essential part of it. And if you, you can't measure who that customer is unless you're meeting them face-to-face, then you have a really tough time of truly knowing who that customer is. Okay, so maybe a tip. A tip. Sorry, Mike, I jumped in there ahead of you. How about a tip for our listeners? How might we go about first to to confirm that who we think we are serving, we are in fact serving. And then secondly, how do we go about getting some good data on that customer experience? Well, I think one good lesson is is don't live through proxies, right? So proxies are things like surveys, what the competition says, you know, kind of macro data. Make sure you understand individual customers and then putting, you know, cohorts and things like that around them is great. But you truly have to know mm. who the individual mm. customer is. And then how do you measure both, you know, kind of the daily interactions as well as that customer lifetime value understanding? Hey, Mike, please join All me. All right, John, I've got a kind of a oddball current <laughs> affairs question. As you and many of our listeners may have read today, 
uh, Uber seems to be putting out a plan for not only customers to have the ability, as as we all know we do have now, to rate the driver, but for drivers to rate the customer. Oh, great. And it speaks to <laughs> Ann's notion that all customers are not uh, necessarily equal. That said, uh, just uh, from your experience with Amazon and now with your consulting firm, uh, if the people who run Uber said, is this a good or a, a ill-fated idea? What's your guidance? Well, I already thought that as a, as a, as a customer of Uber, you had a rating, right? Like I think mine yeah. is like a 4.8 or something like that. So I don't, <laughs> I don't quite understand how this is different than uh, it's, what they already do. Well, if I understand rating. it, uh, they're going to allow drivers then to use that rating to decide whom to Ooh. pick up. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, I think especially in a in a you know matching of supply and demand type of business model that Uber has, where they're just kind of the marketplace and they bring together disaggregated demand with disaggregated um, capability. I think that there could be something uh, really positive about that, but I would just recommend mm. that they test it in a really small way. Be patient with that test and really figure out like both what's the direct. Uh, implications of that and what are kind of the secondary implications of that over a longer period of time before they scale it in a in a broad way because i i think there could be some 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 uh, implications that we're, we're maybe not thinking about there yeah i'm getting nervous here mike <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to be well behaved i'm getting nervous here mike and uber has had some difficulties with respect to Climate. Let's put it in uh, the most uh, diplomatic uh, way. Uh, perception and beyond. Yeah, exactly. So, John, just to stay on this uh, terrain for a few more minutes, uh, I was really interested, as Anne is, in the title, the subtitle of your book, 50 and One Half Ideas mm-hmm. to Become a Digital Leader. And, Anne, let's come back to the one half yeah, maybe in the last right. five minutes. I agree. <laughs> we all want to know what that one half is, and we'll get to that. But I'm in, in particular riveted by idea number 25, what's your flywheel? Mm. And now we're looking inside the company, not at customers. I wonder, John, if you could give us an illustration of how the flywheel operated within the confines of Amazon. Yeah, so that's in the strategy section. So a flywheel is a way to articulate you know, kind of the broader ecosystem in which you um, participate in and what kind of your theory of change is, like how will things work together and that you have a, a certain set of, of capabilities or levers to pull and it helps you understand the relationship between, between those levers. And so as a strategy creation process, building out a more detailed systems model can be a really helpful way of truly understanding, like, what's the ecosystem I'm playing in? What are the assets I have? What's my competition? What's my risk? But then the flywheel is a is a simpler version of that, tends to be a simpler version of it, and it helps you communicate it to your key st- stakeholders, right? So, so you communicate it to your employees, you communicate it to investors, you communicate it to your board, and any idea that you're coming up with, you, you, you put it against the flywheel and you go, well, does this support the flywheel or how does it not support the flywheel? So when I was at Amazon and still today, most proposals, they, they, they articulate, well, how does this new idea that we have, how does this support the flywheel within our business? Hmm. And John, just to stay on that really interesting point, offer up a, I guess, a, a tangible illustration of how that might have worked when you were there. Yeah. So, so the, the 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 basics of the Amazon flywheel was that growth was driven by adding more selection, which improved the customer experience, which then resulted in more traffic. Which helped with traffic resulted in more orders, which then motivated more sellers, and then that would come back around to adding more selection, right? And so that was the basic flywheel, a virtuous cycle that once you get it started, it tends to increase um, in in your way. And so we use that flywheel to basically um, articulate and rationalize why adding. Tens of thousands of third-party mm. sellers, which increase selection over time, 
would improve the customer experience. When I was at Amazon in 2002, 90% of the business was books, music, video. We launched 14 categories over two years. It took time for the customer behavior to understand, oh, I come to Amazon to search for anything. And eventually then that flywheel really turbocharged the business. Is the circular nature of that flywheel critical? So in other words, should is a good flywheel always one that is a virtuous circle? Um, there can be multiple different interconnecting cycles to it, but I, I think that the, the basic aspect of it being a systems model and that nothing resides in isolation completely by itself, I think that 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 holds true. Mm -hmm. So now, John, in your advisory capacity, have you had a client who does not either doesn't have a flywheel or is unable to articulate what that flywheel is? Yeah, it's not the right tool for for every circumstance. But I've, I've had many clients where we're dealing, they've got multiple components to the business. It's hard to understand what the synergies are between them. They've got some real interesting assets from either a data standpoint or a partner standpoint or from a customer standpoint, but they don't understand how the individual pieces add up or more importantly, what should they invest in and should they, should they divest of anything? So I've used flywheel models in those cases, not in every case, but in mm-hmm. those cases to help, help myself and the team better understand the, the, the essence of the business and then to help articulate that strategy to others. And sometimes is it just simply a matter of articulation? And in that case, how do you go about helping your client uh, speak to what it is that he or she has right in hand? Absolutely. And, th- and then once you understand that model, you say, well, how do we, how do we accelerate the flywheel? How do we create momen- more momentum? Well, you know, do we invest in this or do we invest in this? And so it helps you um, build and rationalize, you know, resource deployment is the most important decisions you make as a leader. Where do we put our precious limited resources, time, capital, human capital? Where do we put those resources um, against new initiatives? Very good. I'm going to remind everyone who we are and then ask you a question, a kind of a Mike Seem question, if I may. <laughs> this is Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, cha- uh, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall with Mike Seem, and together we are speaking with our guest tonight about his book, Think Like an Amazon, and our guest is John, John Rossman. So, John, this is, I think of it as a Mike Seem kind of question because uh, we We've been talking primarily about culture and now a little bit about strategy and, of course, about customer and the customer focus. So when you think about culture and strategy, do you think about them as uh, one leading to the other or do you think about them as integrated? How do you how do you think about the two and the relationship? I I, I think there are cases where they are distinct, but I, I, I think of them typically in a in a pretty integrated manner. Okay. Being, 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 being strategy is what are the choices we have? What are we going to say yes and no to? And culture being like, how do we get those types of results? How do we treat each other? What sort of environment do we have? Um, and, and I think that those two things, you know, you can argue whether they're separate or together. But in, my, in most of my practical cases, I find them pretty uh, integrated together. Maybe it's because I'm dealing with all of the cultural aspects. You know, we think it's a strategy or a technical problem, but most of the time it, 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 the real root cause is some mm-hmm. type of cultural issue. Yeah. And now in your response, you remind me that at least, Mike, I'll confess, in the leadership program, we like to say yes. Hmm. <laughs> and sometimes an initiative will come our way and we it's a new initiative. It's sparkly and we want to do it. And sometimes we really need to stop, pause and think, is this in line with what our strategic mission is? So, John, you mentioned saying no. Should we say yes or no? Can you give us an example of when uh, either at, you know, at Amazon, perhaps, when you're thinking about culture and strategy, and the answer was no, we should not go down this direction? Yeah, really hard uh, decision, set of decisions we had to make when we were launching the marketplace business. Um, we felt it was critical for customer trust and for customer experience that Amazon was the only one who would have and manage and process the credit card. 
but sell, several of the the big sellers who we needed to participate in building the business, they they needed for several for a variety of reasons to actually get the credit card from Amazon, and we made a, a very um, difficult, I think, long-term oriented, customer oriented decision that we were not going to allow those types of scenarios. And several of our potential partners walked away from us because of that. And so that was a very clear strategy and customer oriented belief that led us to making a really hard decision where we said no. Very good. Well, why don't we head a little bit to approach and execution? So you've got some uh, whole, maybe about 10 chapters or so. Is there one that stands out for you that you'd like to talk about? Well, yeah. I mean, if I think about, you know, what the biggest mistakes I've made in my career, they they tend to be around hiring decisions. And so one (laughs) of the ideas in here is called raise the bar, avoid the biggest hiring mistakes. And, you know, if I think about, well, what's the root cause? Why did I make hiring decisions? It's oftentimes because you're hiring in a hurry, right? I have a job. I have a project. I have an opening. I need to get it filled. The first available person who has the beats the bare minimum requirements is the person that you hire only to come up, find out later that there's, that there's limitations, there's cultural issues. And so Amazon deals with that by having a process that they call the bar raiser process, which is a specially trained interviewer. They're not part of the the hiring team that's doing the interviewing. And that bar raiser is evaluating the candidate, not just for the job that they're hiring them for, but for what the potential is in that general job category and trying to hire somebody who's, who's got the traits to be able to grow in the organization. And it helps avoid what I think are the biggest hiring mistakes you make, which are the hiring in a hurry hiring mistakes. Mm. Mike, do you want to follow up on that one? You you raised your eyebrow on that. Yeah, no. Well, in an uh, affirmative sense. <laughs> yeah. And and just to stay on that for a minute, we've had many guests on this program who have often said that their significant hiring decisions are absolutely critical mm-hmm. uh, for developing uh, the kind of world they want to uh, develop. And... John, just to, in a sense, turn that into a very tangible moment, watching the bar raiser or yourself uh, sit with a candidate, were there a couple extremely discerning or call them killer questions that in your own experience helped you appreciate whether somebody was right for Amazon or the opposite? Yeah, I always like to to get, you know, a behavioral style interview going where you get them telling about a specific really hard problem that they personally solve and get them going down to a level of detail where you can see like, oh, they really understood the details and were hands-on and, and were curious about how things actually worked. That's the right type of, of leader at Amazon is somebody who's really deeply curious and very detail-oriented and, and, and is interested not just in overseeing work but actually being a problem solver. And so that those were the types of of style of interview that I liked to conduct to really understand mm. somebody a, a good fit. That's great. John, with only a few minutes to go, I do want to get back to the subtitle of your book with yeah. a, a, a question that I think we're all really interested to have you talk a bit about. Think Like Amazon, title, subtitle, 15 and a half ideas to become a digital leader. And the other half, not in your book, that what's over 50 and a half, uh, is this. I'm going to just quote from the uh, almost the final sentence of your book. Uh, here's the question, and then the reader is being asked to add in that last half. How will you build the traits of the truly digital business and culture to ensure uh, Amazon-like results to become the best digitally enabled business you can be and not become roadkill. So you asked the question. I've been thinking about that one apropos our own university, what we're going to have to do to be sure that we can get into the digital age in the right way. But uh, since you're our guest, I do have to ask you, what's your own philosophy on that one? Well, you know, it, it really is about not, you know, everybody talks about 
digital transformation and and all of this, but most leaders kind of go, well, that's the the company that needs to do that, right? In my experience, it's as much about the business model transformation as it is about individual change. And what Mm. are you willing to do as a leader? What new skills are you willing to do? What new habits are you willing to create what, where do you put your individual time differently going forward? Those are the types of personal changes that I think are required to truly successfully compete in the new digital era. And so, you know, the book is, is chock full of, you know, 50 ideas, not advocating that any of them or, or certainly not all of them, only a handful are applicable to you. So the half idea is kind of back to the reader, which is what are you personally willing to do to, to create the future that's going to help you thrive? And quick add on that one. If uh, one of our listeners were to call you up, let's say they're a mid-level manager in a mid-sized company that has kind of resisted the digital age, what kind of personal advice would you have for that individual caller? Uh, become curious, right? Hmm. Try to understand, you know, how things actually work. Just read things and listen to things and, and get hmm. training and education in topics that, that you think might be too unapproachable for you, right? And so, like, a topic like machine learning that's actually a very important topic that every business person needs to understand the concepts and the applicability to it to their business. So really becoming much more curious and, and becoming a, an adopter of lifelong learning. Hmm. All right, John, now I've got a little playful uh, question for you. But first, did you write your book after you left Amazon? The answer is yes, right? And while you... <laughs> Several years after I left Amazon, absolutely. Okay, and and then you also wrote your book after you started your own company. Yes. Okay, so now when you look back at yourself and you're starting your own company, are there any ideas in particular that you wish you had taken into account when you started your own firm? Well, I think part, a big part of the book is about working in the future, and there's a set of activities and kind of approach that Amazon does to help work in the future. It's really about articulating what the big vision is. And I wish that I had had taken more time in really envisioning like in five, 10 years, like what do I envision being and then kind of working backwards. And so I I think I've taken a little bit more of a hopscotch approach to that and everything. So Mm -hmm. I think that that really that concept of working in the future, writing out Mm -hmm. what you envision the future to be and then working backwards. I think I think that would have been a, a, a healthy exercise for me to do. Oh, that's great. And now I'm going to come to your defense. Are you ready? <laughs> your first chapter, Please. your first chapter talks about resetting your clock. And just to remember that your journey will not be short and not necessarily a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> hey, actually, before we leave that, I was intrigued by that to resetting your clock. First chapter. And uh, John, as I recall, it is a huge reset that you advocate. So guide us through resetting your clock. <laughs> really? Well, well, really, I mean, I think the story of Amazon, and you kind of started off the discussion with this, which is, which is, you know, what everybody doesn't, nobody remembers that Amazon was was failing, that um, it was Amazon.bomb, that it was an mm. unsustainable business model, and they were patient with it. They believed in it, mm-hmm. and they were patient with it, and they were willing to be misunderstood for a very long period of time. And so, if you truly want to, you know, build new habits, compete differently, innovate, these are not short-term fixes that, that um, are in place. And so this is not a book uh, or a set of concepts or ideas about short-term improvements. Very good. So, so John, what's next on the horizon? Well, in, uh, for myself yeah, or for, for you. Amazon or the, yeah, the for world you. in general? No, for you. <laughs> we'll yeah, start yeah. with you. And maybe we'll try the world, too. Yeah. Yeah, so I uh, I get the opportunity to go out and talk to a lot of audiences and leadership teams and really help them like on a more personalized basis. Like, what's your opportunity, and what are some some exercises or tools or strategies that we can put in place? And I just love uh, that type of work because I learn so much along mm-hmm. with it. I learn new businesses. I learn I learn other tricks mm-hmm. and approaches to to solving problems. And so. 
um, I love the variety in my business, and I'm going to keep going with that. That's great. And just one last question, then Mike and I will do our our traditional uh, after-action review. I'm just curious, when you were, say, 10 years old, did you imagine that you would be doing what you are doing now? I uh, I don't think either I imagined or anybody else imagined (laughs) that I would have the types of opportunities. I just, I feel so fortunate that um, I was born in an, in an era really where, you know, all of this was coming to, to life. But in some ways, I'm really jealous of, you know, my boys who are in college now because I think nice. the, the, the future is going to be that much more uh, dynamic. And so I'm just fortunate that, you know, kinda I had the right skill set for the right time and the right curiosity. But no, I, I, I didn't imagine this. I, I'm an engineer by background. I mm-hmm. never envisioned um getting to write uh, books and, and, and doing that type of work. It's really fun. It's very creative. John, I'm, I'm hearing the fact that uh, you learned, I learned the same thing, or didn't learn, didn't hear from our parents that we ought to grow <laughs> up to be a digital pioneer. Uh, that said, opportunities come along, and we've got to be a uh, individual who's ready to move into a new world that may not have been in our childhood, but here it is. And, John, I think maybe a final point, at least for me, is jump into it with both feet. How does that sound for you? Sounds great. Very good. And, John, before we leave you, uh, tell us how uh, our listeners can find the book and learn more about Rossman Partners. Yes, so the book, Think Like Amazon, is available at Amazon, uh, hardback, Kindle, and um, Audible book. And it's also available at Barnes & Noble and a number of other uh, great uh, book retailers. And you can find me at rossmanpartners.com. And, John, ironically, we have a paper copy right in front of us. (laughs) We do, (laughs) right in front of us. (laughs) So it comes in all forms. I I still like the physical book form factor. uh, And so most of the books that I, I read and digest, I'm still buying the physical book, too. I really love it. That's great. Well, John, we wish you the best, and thank you so much for joining us on Leadership in Action. Thank you. Very good, Mike. Now, you started our AAR a little bit by saying, you know, we need to be digital. We have about a minute left. Would yeah. you add anything to that? I would. And I go back to the title of the book, Think Like Amazon. It's a good metaphor. We use it. One of our colleagues here, and you know well, wrote a book called Think Like a Guide. Yes. I've often used a phrase, if you're working in an enterprise, think like the CEO or think like the president. You're not. But work back they're thinking to where you are, what would they want you to do? Think like a CEO to understand what you should do. So think like Amazon. Let's go and take a look at what they're doing. We're not Amazon. But by thinking in other settings, we sometimes can get a better fix of what's critical at home. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the longevity of organizations, Mike. (laughs) Really, Or or the lack thereof. Or the lack thereof. Yeah. Yeah. And on the importance of uh, not getting too comfortable or to take things for granted. And how can you continue to reinvent yourself as an organization and, frankly, as a person as you work your way through through your career? And one answer is read this book. <laughs> read this book. <laughs> and listen weekly to Leadership in Action. Yeah, and stay curious, as our guest said. Stay curious. All right. Well, I I hope you've had a good time listening to us on Leadership in Action. And once again, we want to thank our guest, John Rossman, for joining us tonight on Leadership in Action. He spoke to us about his book, Think Like an Amazon, 50 and One Half Ideas to Become a Digital Leader. We also want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and tonight, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for joining us. We're really sorry that Jeff Klein, our dear colleague and co-host, could not join us tonight. But, Mike, I'm so glad you were here, and I'm here. Anne Greenhall, Mike Yuseem, and together we hosted Leadership in Action. So come back next week. Come join us, Leadership in Action, on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. We'll see you next week. Good night. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 